I failed probably for three years that this tour, you know, subconsciously, I felt it, it, the presence of this tour in my subconscious, and it's been like bubbled deep down, and it's slowly been bubbling up to the surface. And it's like uh, a lot of forces and energies, you know, I don't really know. I mean, in a way, I decided to go on tour, I suppose. You could say that. But in, in reality, it was like just outside energies and maybe subconscious desires or I don't know, but whatever it was, I felt it coming for three years. And when it finally came, I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? It's, it's mad, really mad, you know. It, you know, such a big tour because I, I did think if I was to tour America again, I certainly didn't want to do the same thing like, you know, those hectic, really crazy tours like in the old days where you'd be left in a room for eight hours and they'd throw you a Hershey bar occasionally when they remembered. <laughs> I thought we'd do a tour, I'd play maybe 10 cities and take a lot of time to go to those 10 cities, maybe take two or three days off in between each city where I'd see a little bit of America, maybe we'd go by camper or by train or something like that. And instead, it, it just, uh, it, it got to the point where I thought, well, if I'm doing it, I might as well do the, you know, in one shot, because once you get into the motion, I might as well do as many as possible. Welcome to this week's Monday with Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. And joining us is co-host of the P2 Podcast Blues, Martin Quibell. You've heard him before. He's also host of Pods Like Us. That's right. Yes, the world-renowned Pods Like Us. Applause. <laughs> Yay! Well, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about hyperbole here. We spoke of May Pang last week. Well, May Pang has announced that she's got a film coming out at Tribeca shortly. That's BR when we could talk about her last week and then she shows up. That's that's working it. From our lips to May Pang's <laughs> ears, I guess. Yep. I think she listened to your show and suddenly thought, yep, that's a good idea. I know what to do now. I'm going to put together a film in a week. No, I, I don't think so. But <laughs> but nonetheless, the, the, there it is publicly. It's, it is streaming. 
It will be available on Friday, June the 10th. The name of the film is The Lost Weekend, A Love Story. That's beautiful. Okay. We know where she's going with this. I've made my opinions of May's book. May herself is a very lovely person, although I've never actually met her. From everyone who's actually met her, they have nothing bad to say about her. Are you going to start? No, no, I, I don't know her. <laughs> and Instamatic Karma is a great book. Her book of photos, Loving John, well, I'm not going to go into it. Everybody knows my opinion of that. I have thought over the years, though, that she must have quite a bit of film footage as well as photographic footage of John and incidents during this period. Yeah, although I don't know what is left after her photo book. The important stuff all came out there. Yeah, but then she's probably got all this filmed footage as well now, you see, so she can give that to the people as well, you know, for no other reason but to give it to the people, of course. What it says in her press release is, with unbelievable access to rich archival footage, rarely heard home recordings, and a collection of Lennon's own quirky evocative sketches, famed writer and music executive May Pang takes us on a deeply emotional journey through the 18 months that would shape her life and reinvigorate one of the greatest figures in music. Hyperbole much? Well, that's what you need in an ad. Well, okay, yeah, it's a press (laughs) release. The only thing that I find a little bit questionable is... Famed writer? Yeah, she wrote Loving John. How many Beatle people have written a book? (laughs) Yeah, but also reinvigorated him to the degree where he didn't make another album for four years. (laughs) There you go. But she'll blame it on Smoke Enders and Yoko's um, magical hypnotist. Right, no no blame for her. No, no, she, she, she takes no blame or credit for, well, I guess she takes credit for trying to get John to go to New Orleans with and meet up with Paul. Well, Martin, it just struck me that this all went down in 73, 74. And so maybe her films were waiting for the box set, the 50-year box set. There you go. And something else was going on in 73, 74, which is our main topic, which is the reason we have Martin here. That's a very good segue right there. <laughs> yeah, I used to be master of the segues. I don't know where that skill went. <laughs> he's got a decree in segway <laughs> okay well i like to ride them around and steer them i don't fall off them like our former president did <laughs> right <laughs> okay what we're talking about is we're talking about the 1974 dark horse tour by george harrison and just to bring in one last bit of john lennon in relation to this john and george showed up for a radio interview together in december of 74 Presenting George Harrison and special guest John Lennon. In the middle of his coast-to-coast tour, we sat down with George in his New York hotel room. The time was 5 a.m. The time was right. Wow, which would have been around the time of this tour. Right. Well, exactly. Right at the end of this tour. And, of course, Paul went to one of the Madison Square shows. Paul and Linda wearing their Marx Brothers disguises. Yep, completely unknown to anybody other than the people who took photographs of them. (laughs) (laughs) How they thought they could get away with that. Although, I mean, even when Paul goes good in costume, people recognize him. He he likes to tell that story since we were speaking in New Orleans about going out for Mardi Gras. And and those clown costumes, he's not recognizable in the marionette setup. No, they are very good costumes. That's for sure. But still, his story is he and Linda went out, and they were on one of the cars, and people kept shouting, Hey, Paul! 
<laughs> maybe it was the 300 people who were following him that, <laughs> that gave it away. Yeah, the security team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 73, 74 was kind of a rough time for George. Why in the world did he decide to do a tour? From what I've read, it's something which sort of came to him in February of 74 while he was hanging out with Ravi in India. There was definite pressure for all of them to get out. You know, everybody wanted to see anybody, somebody, because it had been so long. So I'm not that surprised. Although it was a tour on top of a lot of work that he had been through. He'd been kind of nonstop. From the beginning of 73 to early 74, he was busy. But then from the beginning of 74 to mid-late summer 74, he was finishing up three albums, one of which was his own. On top of that, he then had to get the band together and start rehearsals. Yep, and one of those albums was the Splinter album as well, wasn't it, I think? It was. My memory, when, when I went into the pavilion to see him, the Splinter album was playing as the warm-up music. I didn't know what it was, never heard it, but I was sitting there thinking, wow, is this the new George Harrison album? Everybody's talking. You couldn't really hear clearly what was going on, but it had that sound that was familiar to me. So I thought that that's what that was. Well, he is all over the album, isn't he? Oh, he is. And it's a great album. I mean, I like it a lot. Of the folks that he would bring with him, Billy Preston was actually coming off a, a big high. He'd had two number one hits late 1973 early 1974 yeah he was definitely hot he was hotter than any of the beatles at that point absolutely and they were great tunes as well that you've just shouted out yeah we said who else might george have invited on this tour ringo's the obvious one but he wasn't going to bring ringo with him billy may have slightly overshadowed him but a george and ringo tour who's it and what's it together again there's no way that George would have allowed that. That would have made a circus of the whole Dark Horse thing. Yeah, and George, leading up to the actual tour, he perhaps in some people's opinions arrogantly said that he didn't want another concert for Bangladesh, which was basically just one famous person following another famous person, and that he he wanted something completely different. So... Having Ringo, which, I mean, admittedly, I've thought that, oh, if he had Ringo with him, that might have been interesting, but that would have gone completely against that aesthetic he was after, and he didn't want the big show. He just wanted to go out there and perform songs and be himself, essentially. Himself and Ravi. I mean, it is the George Harrison and Ravi Shankar show. We tend to forget that a little bit. And yet, Billy Preston played almost as much as as Ravi did. The Indian section is a good, oh, what, 40 minutes. Wow. So that that would be around the same length as the Indian bit for the concert for George, then. Except that it was in the middle of the show. Yeah. George did a couple songs, then the Indian guys came out, then George came back for the end. George's section of the show was, oh, maybe an hour 10, hour 15. Yeah. But when you're talking about musicians that George had with him, I don't know that many songs by them, but he had two members of Spooky Tooth on the Dark Horse album. But he took one of them on tour with him, but not the other. Right. I think we were talking initially, would there be other people that he might bring with him in a a version of uh, Ringo Starr's all-star band? 
Yeah. You know, now, as you said, he specifically said, that's not really what I want to do, but we were kind of playing with, well, who would he bring if he was more open to that? I think you could say he might bring Ringo. Well, that was my idea behind him having Ringo with him because then you'd have songs that were of the moment of Ringo's as well. He would harmonize Ringo on Photograph, for instance. They might even have a play on Sunshine Life for me or It Don't Come Easy. Yeah. In that kind of show, George would be playing some of his songs anyway. I mean, considering that he helped compose those tunes. Yeah. Unfortunately, George was mad at Eric at the time, and Eric was in no condition health-wise to go on tour with George. Okay. He's the other obvious one that she would say, oh, yeah, sure. It would have been 92 a couple years early. Right, but he was still playing with Leon Russell. Yeah. And, and Nicky Hopkins was around. Now, those are two who would have been real good sidemen to add to this set. Although, I mean, he already has, what, five guys on tour with him? There's nothing bad about the band. The band as it is is really actually a tight band. Yeah, it is. But like you said, I mean, if he would had Nicky or Leon with him, then that might have given a bit of scope then to have dual keyboards. So you would have had them switching between organ and piano between Billy and yeah. Nicky or Billy and Leon. But with Leon, as opposed to Nicky, you've got someone who could bring their own material and beef up the, the set as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, what George really needed was he needed more singers. Yeah is really him and Billy doing the bulk of the singing. True. Billy's in fine form during that tour. His voice is killing it. He was at his peak, really, as far as the charts were concerned. I mean, he was really churning out some great material. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. He was coming off of two number one hits, both of which he played. Right. So I've listened to the concert, and I thought that when they started on the song Something, for instance, I was listening and I was thinking... God, could you imagine if he'd have actually have just let Billy have sung that instead? That would have been a really good soulful number. I agree. That would have been great. Did George want to put the spotlight on Billy that much? He was full of ego himself, don't forget. Yeah, well, but he fought that a lot. You're acting like he was all wrapped up in his ego, but if Ravi would have taken him aside. That would have been possibly the only way it might have worked. I just have a lot of concepts which I want to get rid of and which I'm getting rid of. Like what he said in Pisces Fish, one half's going where the other half's just been. This is all a fantasy anyway, because, you know, I was going to throw in, I'd like to see Crosby and Nash show up. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think we have to be a little bit realistic. Paul McCartney is not going to walk out on that stage, especially after George in the pre-show press conference told the world that he'd join a band with John Lennon any day. Do you want me to read the quote? Because I've got the quote in a book here. This is it. Sure, sure. Go go, go ahead. To tell the truth, I'd join a band with John Lennon any day, but I couldn't join a band with Paul McCartney. It's nothing personal, it's just from a musical point of view. 
And then he carries on in the same bit to say he'd only met Andy Newmark and Willie Weeks a few months ago. If I hadn't met them, I wouldn't have a rhythm section, but I leave the Lord provides me or all of us. Although Andy Newmark didn't play the whole tour. He only played about half the tour. Andy Newmark, the same drummer who would go on to play on Double Fantasy. Yes. Right. Yep. You've got a lot of that, haven't you, know, where, where musicians would play with John on his stuff and then they'd play with George or vice versa. Because later on you get Jesse, Ed Davis, Jesse. is that his name? They both played with George as well. Yes. And John. Well, and John had wanted Willie Weeks originally for Double Fantasy, but Willie was recording somewhere in England. Am I allowed to say that I'm glad that he got Tony Levin? Yeah. I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard to beat. As much as I love Willie Weeks as playing, Tony Levin's bass is all over that album, and it's incredible. It's just so Tony. Another guy who's really, really hot. I mean, he just he plays in so many different styles. Because certainly Double Fantasy has a certain viewpoint, and then considering he was also playing in King Crimson. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So will we put Splinter on stage in concert of bangladesh it was bad finger of course bad finger was not in a position to go on the road with george harrison at that time splinter could have conceivably been backing if george wanted that big thick sound although you know maybe he was trying to escape the specter sound a little bit he seems to have wanted to go a little bit more bare i mean if you talk about the tour itself most of his arrangements are much funkier than what he put on record he brought in a horn section and with willie weeks the versions are different something doesn't sound like the record at all (laughs) well he he made a comment that he wanted to kind of dillon it up a little bit that that he wanted to go and play these songs where people don't recognize them until three quarters of the way through that worked (laughs) that's what he did all right yep nobody recognized them until that time that's true (laughs) Yep, carrying on from what John said, I'd actually written in my notes a suggestion could have been to have Splinter actually open up and do 20 to 30 minutes of a set. And then George could have popped on and off the stage to sort of like perform with them, play some guitar or whatever. And then maybe members of Splinter fill in any musical gaps in the main sets. Right. That's an interesting idea. And it wouldn't have taken away from anything. I mean, Bill Elliott was a slightly known entity, but in general, as you say, no one knew who they were yet. True. No, and it would have given them good promotion as well to put out that album that George had produced because they could even say, our new album produced by George, and then they could have gone out there and that could have got them some promotion. Yeah, that, that would have been smart. And it would have been pushing George as career outside of being George Harrison as well. It's a bit like my opinion to getting Billy to sing something where George could then push, look, I am a songwriter. This is one of my songs. This is how my song could sing, sung by this person. So we'd be pushing different areas of his own, of who he is then as a a creative person, rather than everybody looking at him as, oh, that's the ex-Beatle that used to play with John and Paul. It's funny. There's a shot of a, the guy selling programs outside of Madison Square, and it's like. Hey, the X Beatle himself got a program. Hey, tonight's Super program. Hey, George X Beatle Harrison program. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
we can look back on it in irony, but that must have hurt a little bit the first time George saw that footage. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, in our fantasy concert here, if we're going to have Splinter play, then opening up for them would be uh, Cheech and Chong. <laughs> Basketball Jones. So let's go into the show itself. The show ended up just being a tour of the United States, what, 45 dates in more or less November of December of 1974. Right. Yes, and that was pushing himself because, as he's said in interviews since then, you know, he'd not thought about the fact that he's going from when the Beatles used to do 30-minute sets, sometimes 25 minutes, and then suddenly he's on a tour where he's having to do a couple of hours, which is completely different, and he's doing that twice a day as well in some cases. Yeah, not at every venue, but in a lot of venues, including here in Houston, he did an afternoon show and he did an evening show. While it's certainly nothing like the shows would look today, for the era, it was a pretty big setup. Yep, and having the split sets as well. So you've got a set there, then you've got Ravi, and then you've got to come back for your set. That's a logistical nightmare for the actual team or the crew doing the setup because then you've got to change from one sound to another and you've got to change the stage between the two as well. So that's crazy did they just leave the stage and bring the indian guys on or or how did that work it was set up in different levels so that the indian musicians played on risers so it was already away from that center that became harrison's band they just sort of came up on the stage like paul's grandfather (laughs) sort of they opened up with tom scott they did harry's on tour a great opener by the way yeah absolutely And so they did several songs, and then the Indian musicians came out and did songs. So there's that transition. And then they finished, and then the other band kind of came back. So that's another transition. But I don't recall that there was any great time lag between the setup. Hello, okay. I'd just like to say something to Uh, you. It's really good here, you know, nice, good... Friendly, very friendly. Thank you. Okay, uh, the, the show's going to be split into two sections. Ah, no, it's not. But let me, if you just listen, let me tell you what's going to happen. You see, I've got a bunch of friends here. Um, we're all going to play something together. And. And then we're going to have a little intermission, and then me and the band, this band, will all be back on again, and we're going to be playing for hours and hours or whatever. But... But, uh, as some of you may or may not know, it's something that's been very important to my life. In fact, I wouldn't be able to be here now if it hadn't been for... Uh, certain influences from ancient old India. And we've got something, just a minute, we've got some music here which is quite new in very many ways, right? So uh, all I ask, all I would request is that, you know, is just to have a little trust and a little patience and not too many preconceptions as to what, you know, everybody should do in their lives. 
and maybe you're going to enjoy this. So I'd just like to bring on all these indie musicians and, of course, the most wonderful person to have come in my life, Ravi Shankar. You know, I was a typical Beatle fan, and and I was kind of irritated that they went on so long. It's like, okay, the, the Indian presentation was more than I really wanted to see at the time. I remember it fondly, but at the time I was like, oh, come on, come on. I'm here to see George Harrison. Well, and, you know, that's what a lot of people were, and, and that's part of what was a big deal with the tour. Bangladesh, the Indian stuff all came before and of course, George wasn't going to do that here because you do that here. People will find out pretty quickly and know to show up 45 minutes into the set. Right. But it's interesting how revisionists have looked back on it when they've said that it was almost boy was doing something before the time because you know, they say that in the 80s, you'd see artists such as, you know, Peter Gabriel, Sting, David Byrne, they'd have mixed sets with world musicians and be utilizing them in their own music. So in a sense, George was 10 years before all those artist would do exactly the same thing yeah and i'm sorry i was irritated (laughs) because i just wasn't there yet but in retrospect it was really cool but what would work for those artists later in the 80s and onwards george didn't do which he could have done quite easily you'd transition from one to the other so you'd have the world musicians who are on the stage towards the end of their set it would transition into one of the main the other act songs so so you'd have their instruments backing those which is more of a flowing it works better whereas george it was like that's the world section that's us where right. he could quite easily have integrated their sound to bring him back in again for his second set well particularly i think with the the beatles as musicians and it certainly is the case with Paul's career, you know, the evolution of the industry from when they started out to where it is now is just incredible. Sound systems, lighting systems, crews that go from show to show. It's just completely changed. Two individual sets of road crews are on the road right now getting ready for Paul's setup. Well, from this point next week, he'll be starting up his Got Back tour as you folks are listening to this. Right. And how beautiful is that drumhead? <laughs> the 76 tour of Wings was pretty revolutionary. The trucks and the things that moved on to the, the next city and things had definitely changed. The Stones changed it. I think Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young changed the way touring worked. Harrison's kind of at the beginning of that. 
Yeah, that's why I say it's, it's kind of in the middle between the Late Stones presentation and what we would get with Wings and then with the Pink Floyd just a couple of years later. Yeah. After the opening number, Harry's on tour, Express, George had planned to have two more solo numbers, and he tried them out the first night. The Lord loves the one, and, and who can see it? But he very quickly realized, my voice is in no condition to sing these every night, and the show is probably running a little long. So both of those got cut by the second evening. I could see the Lord loves the one fitting in it. can see it is a weird song to put that early in the set so i'm not surprised it got pulled yep although if it had been later in the set it would have been one of those nice ones that could have transitioned to ravi's section yes okay then through the tour something was pretty much the second song george's voice was not in a condition to handle singing something every night as you mentioned maybe he should have given it to billy maybe he should have done something no pun intended with it but as is it's a little bit painful well you know uh, a voice like that and a, a song like that when you're hoarse you can fake it particularly through some of the rockier numbers, but there's no finesse in your voice. And so that vocal line that he created with something just doesn't happen in this live presentation. It's rough. And he can't really hold the notes. A question I've had, and I don't know whether you found anything out about this, Ed, through your research, was he was having a problem with laryngitis at the time and some other things as well. So why didn't he actually just postpone the entire tour until January of the new year when he would have got over the laryngitis? Well, apparently he had looked into canceling it and he decided not to. I don't think the possibilities were postpone it. It was cancel it or don't. And he had actually considered it. And well, what he said was that I've already got the band booked. We've already got all this money invested. I'm just going to soldier on. And George was in his own head a little bit at that time. He was literally speeding through life. He was uh, taking mountainfuls of cocaine, as is described in several places, and drinking huge amounts of brandy. So it's like, I can do this. Yep, but I don't know, but the postponement would have worked better for The Voice if that was a possibility, but obviously it wasn't. I think doing it at this period of time it makes things a little bit more difficult. Wings Over America, when they had a little bit of wiggle room, because they were doing it in the summer, I think is the fact that this is a winter tour, and then they'd originally planned the, for the spring to be a UK iteration of this tour. Well, Paul did postpone his tour. Well, that's what I'm saying. Paul could because it was a summer tour. This tour was set up as a winter tour, and he was thinking that early in 75, he could have come back and done it another 15, 20 shows in the UK. The answer to your question is, 
he could have canceled. He decided against it for several reasons. Postponement wasn't in the cards. Okay. Right. And I will agree with you. You know, you listen to the run. His voice does get a little bit better by the end of the tour. Fort Worth is in just terrible shape early on in the tour. And then by the time he gets to the end, it's, while it's not good, it's better. Yeah. I mean, if he'd not had those concerts leading up to then, his voice would have been even better for later on that time later. So if it had been, like I said, postponed, which obviously wasn't a possibility, then his voice would have been better shape at that point than it ended up being because he was constantly straining his voice and his chords to keep singing once, sometimes twice a day. The universe just sort of came down on him. Just the idea that he decided to call this dark horse. And then his voice does that. It's just like, oh my God. It's opening the way for Rolling Stone to create the H-O-A-R-S-E pun. Right, which has lasted forever. Yeah, I mean, it's still, to this day, when people look back on that period, it's still the one thing that clouds this period for George's career. Yes. So the next (laughs) song is While My Guitar Gently Weeps. No, it's not. He sings while my guitar tries to smile. That's what George does through this whole thing. He allows the crowd a little bit of candy. Okay, I'm going to play these Beatles songs up front, but he changes the lyrics of them. And that's what pissed me off more than anything that I'm talking about while I was watching it. I was just like, what? It'd be one thing to change some words, which he does throughout the show. But the song is called While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And he changes that. He does that throughout the entire set. He's constantly changing up lyrics. I mean, even lyrics to a John song as well. Right. And not not only changes the lyrics, but kind of changes the intent. (laughs) As we'll discuss his version of In My Life, not good. I don't know if John ever heard it or forgave him for that. That's why George didn't write about him in his book and why John was still mad at him four years later. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, unfortunately, George could do what he wanted with those era of Beatles songs because they didn't own them. So they didn't have a right to say yes or no to George playing that song, I suppose. There you go. It's an okay version. It's a very different style of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Like you say, it's kind of funkier. The solo's not there, obviously, or anything even approaching the solo. He doesn't really come off as a guitarist like he would in later tours and how he was appreciated. He'd play a a solo now and again, but a lot of it was him playing little parts. And even in in another song, the slide was taken up by a um, keyboard. 
Yeah, and a lot of the time for the main guitar soloing and lead work is defaulting to another one of the guitarists, Robin Ford. That was, then Billy gets his chance to shine for the first spot with the Will It Go Around in Circles. I've seen half a dozen versions of it from this tour. It is one of the highlights of the whole show. Billy's on fire. Yeah, lots, yeah. Of, lots of energy and... And George is having fun. You know, he's dancing around and, and doing the kicks. And he and Billy are just great together. Well, the kicks were in Billy's show. And so George was just kind of joining in. That that was definitely Billy's thing. So. Yeah, but George didn't have to do it. <laughs> no, he could just be a back of the back being surly. <laughs> <laughs> but George was enjoying it, obviously. Yes, he was. Then George finishes up his first part of the set with... Sumi Suyu Blues. It's a great song, but you lose the humor. And it's another one where his voice kind of tanks the whole thing. And he sings. Which not many people do when they're swearing in. Which, which, <laughs> which is what the line is, you know. You're swearing your testimony and I don't know. That may have been a nod to, to Ravi because Ravi is just about to come on stage. So Sumi Suyu Blues is the end of the first part. And so you're saying that they were either setting up or coming on during that part of the show. The risers were coming up and the spotlight turned just 90 degrees or something over to the Indian section. Yeah. Ravi playing was center stage. It wasn't all off so nothing was coming on while something else was going on <laughs> make any sense you know the musicians were coming on while while what? george was playing no, it was not at all. it was they were there and it was ready to go yeah robbie gets oh at least a good 30 40 minutes zoom 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 a couple songs i'm not going to attempt to pronounce uh <laughs> n-a-d-e-r-d-a-n-i and c-h-e-p-a-r-t-e love those songs Later on, you'd also have Anurag as well, which is a favorite of mine from Ravi. Three more Ravi tunes. Although these are actually probably better known, and to me, they're much more listenable. Anurag, which you had mentioned, I Am Missing You, and Dispute and Violence. Again, the same sort of world music, and, well, we can't describe them in 30 seconds here like we can everything else, but those three songs I would really like to hear on a soundtrack. Absolutely. Definitely. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That piece... That piece of music is from our new album on the Dark Horse record label and it's in a way it's you know we're all trying to liberate ourselves and uh, you know this is um, a piece of music from a ballet Rob is written and I hope you all enjoyed it enough to go and get it this song is also on the ballet uh, but it's a vocal number sang by Lakshmi Shankar here and Viji Shankar on the other side The song is actually another love song and 
it doesn't matter what you may call the Lord or God, whether you believe in Him or not, but this song we call Him Krishna, and it's called I'm Missing You. Krishna, where are you? And I hope you like it. That's one of those that's from one of Ravi's best-selling albums, which I can understand that one being there, and it's a particular favourite of mine. Yeah, you know, one of my favourite albums is uh, Philip Glass and Ravi Shankar did a, an album called Passages. I recommend that very highly. Yeah, that's a great album. I like the one he did with the Yehudi Menuhin as well. I think that's a great album as well. Although, you know, how many of them are still in print? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, some of the early albums are really hard to find. You know, it's one of the good things about Dark Horse coming back into existence is they are working with Ravi's family to make sure that all this stuff is available again. For anybody interested, there is a fantastic five-album set that you can get of Ravi's that includes what I think are probably five of his standout albums there. So if anyone's interested, that's a really good set, and it's at a good price as well. You listen to the complete recordings of the show's they're interesting. Uh, you know, Martin's right. It's a little bit of world music. It goes on too long. I would have cut it, but it is the George Harrison and Ravi Shankar show. Right. I mean, the fact that it, I was a little impatient is my fault, not, not theirs. I feel like they went on as long as they felt like they should. <laughs> uh, so George comes back. He starts up his second half of the set with For You Blue, but... Uh, it's not really for you, Blue. No, it's, it's not. <laughs> you know, it's kind of for you, Blue, into the hoary rock and roll cliche of let's go around the horn and everybody give a little solo. He introduces the band. He changes the tune, whereas before, the pretty little song, and and then he just kind of, on this version, he falls into a standard blues melody and just kind of shouts the lyrics. It's not a very good rendition, in my opinion. Yeah, it loses yeah. the delicacy of the original version. That you right. know, but then again, you don't know whether was his voice such that he really couldn't do that very well. Especially given the next song, uh, "Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth." As we were saying, with something uh, throughout the tour, his voice just sabotages any attempt at subtlety. Yeah, and that chord progression and melody is a nightmare if you've got problems with your voice as well. <laughs> right. And, you know, the fact that you have to hold certain notes for a good time, that's a tough one when you're hoarse. That may be why he put it between what we shall call the For You Blue Jam and Soundstage of Mind, which is another jam. Right. This is the one that the slide in Give Me Love is replaced by a keyboard line it's like oh my gosh she's not gonna play the slide on this yeah and it's really missed as well it's a hook of the song yeah sure the background is much funkier yeah i mean points of the song in the recorded version you've got some quite large lifts vocally as well melodically where he'll be going 
up by a few tones in notes, you know, from a relative mid-voice to his high, the highest that George can go. So, I mean, those must have been really virtually impossible to do if you've got the problems that George is having at that time. Yeah. Soundstage of Mind is followed by what is probably (laughs) the most problematic song of the evening George had decided to cover in my life. Well, in my life. It's also a complete change from in my life as a Beatle recording is acoustic, delicate. And this has a, a horn driven. Almost Spectre-esque sludge to it. Yeah. Yeah. In the original version, I think it's one of John's best standard style writings. So, But this has gone that far away from it that it sort of destroyed what made the original version and the song itself what it was. And it's interesting. You, you look at what has George been doing at this point. He's been doing Beatles songs. Since he took out the two solos at the beginning... You know, you got Sue Me, Sue You Blues, and Give Me Love, and that's it as far as solo stuff. Absolutely. Maybe another All Things Must Pass song in here somewhere might have been worth putting in. Well, we're just going to get into that, though, because he's going to play a couple songs from the upcoming album. Yeah, that's true. Paul does four Beatles songs on Wings Over America, but he kind of buries them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll give you a couple Beatles songs, but I'm not going to make it the star of the show. To this point, that's kind of almost all George has been doing. Yeah, completely against what George was saying, where he's not the Beatles anymore, and he's saying that the Beatles had their time and now it's this. But he's leaning to the Beatles material a bit too much to be able to push that. But in a Bob Dylan way, he's playing these Beatles songs in a way that aren't the Beatles, you know, almost deliberately. So this is not the Beatles version of something. It's not the Beatles version of while my guitar gently weeps. He's changed them up. In fact, the only two songs where he kind of does the songs as they are in the recording are the new ones. He can't change them up because nobody's really heard them yet. Yeah. You know, so he plays those versions, but everything else he touches He's like, nope, it's not going to be that version. It's going to be something else. So In My Life is followed by the Tom Scott showcase, uh, Tomcat. Nice bit of horns. What he's famous yep. for. Uh, really, almost the rest of George's part of the show, he alternates with Billy. In my brain back then, it was because Billy's songs were so much more energetic. It brought the show up. Tomcat is followed by uh, Maya Love. Not a great choice to put here. <laughs> it is an interesting choice. Well, it's an interesting choice to play live, period. Yeah. Thank you. This tune now is on uh, a new album that I'm going to try and get out as soon as possible. I mean, maybe as in about four or five weeks. Two know. days. And it's uh, it just from the tracks, and it's called Maya Love. You know, I'm looking at the set list and I'm thinking, where was Living in the Material World? Because that was a cracking song. Why is that not in the set? Yeah. He seems to be ignoring everything prior to Dark Horse just about. Yeah. He makes some interesting choices. 
That's followed by the one Billy Preston song that we don't remember from this set, Out of Space. It's a funky little song. I mean, everything Billy does is funky. That was a hit. That was on the radio. It just wasn't as big as these others. Are you ready to boogie? Do you want to boogie? Okay, I want to see if you want to boogie. Then we get into Dark Horse. Now here is George Horse singing Dark Horse. There's a little bit of it on the record as we had spoken about, but here he's having trouble. He's struggling. Yep. And Dark Horse itself is a a hard song to sing. It's got a high note for George, and he really has to push it in order to make it sound. Okay, this is another new tune, but it hopefully should be in the shop soon as a single. And it's, <coughs> you know, I've got, I haven't got much voice, but it fits for this one because it's the tune which is called uh, Dark Horse. I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned, Billy is trying his best to fill in those high notes. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. A bit more practice and they could have actually worked it so that they merged the vocals a bit better so it would transition so that the higher parts were done by Preston and the lower parts were done by George. You look at current McCartney, Abe is singing almost all of the high parts, but Unless you're just paying real close attention, you don't know. Right. Yep. Yeah, they could have done exactly the same thing. Yep. They do that on the next song, which is What Is Life, that, that Billy takes the higher part. You know, it's a harmony on the chorus, and George takes the lower part, and it works really well. Do you think that the fact that the set was that long, if it was a shorter set, his voice might have been a bit better? Now that we're talking about it, I really think it would have been a real good idea to bring Splinter on and do (laughs) 30 or 40 minutes. (laughs) Right. Make it a tight two-hour show. You do Splinter, then maybe you do an Indian set, then you have George doing maybe half his set, then another half of the Indian set, and then George closes out the show. Before What Is Life, you get Billy's other big hit, his number one hit, Nothing From Nothing, which has always been a highlight of wherever Billy's played it. 
I love the all-star version of Nothing From Nothing. But this is a good one as well. I mean, it was new at this time. Yep. You can't go wrong because it's a cracking song. There's a reason why it's remembered as one of Billy's best songs is because it is a bloody good song. What is life is George closing out his portion of the set, although he will be back for an encore. And it's funked up, you know, it has a whole other feel to it. Yeah, it's really kind of like you were saying, the show is much more of an almost R&B show than it is a, a rock and roll show. Yeah. I think this song actually works better than a lot of the other ones with that integration of Billy and George. Yeah, the, the vocals work. Yeah. This is one that I think they may have been playing around with for quite a while, and so they'd worked up a really pretty good arrangement. Some of the others, okay, it's, it's Billy trying to cover for George. Yep, going back to the analogy of Paul with Abe, it works just the same way as as that works for Paul at the moment, you know. So Billy's bits in this with George, I think it's the best mix of the two of them together that's in the set of George's songs anyway. I'd agree with that. Was My Sweet Lord a proper encore? Did the lights go down and everyone clap and cheer? Or did George just come back out and play it? Do you remember? Oh, everybody clapped and cheered, yeah. Was it the curtains closed and the lights went down, or was it George is going to come back out and play his encore? Yeah, well, no curtains. <laughs> okay. And typical rock show, you always know the lights go down. As long as the lights stay down, then you can keep clapping. If the lights come back up, everyone will stop and go out. But the lights are down, so something more going to happen. It was basically the typical, Yeah. what we're used to these days. Yes, so the lights came back up, and George came back out, and he does, well, My Sweet Lord. Kind of. <laughs> it was jazzed up and kind of frenzied. It's almost a Hey Jude, My Sweet Lord, you know, because he keeps it going. Yeah, well, I think it was meant to be gospel-like. The The whole crowd is supposed to, you know, My Sweet Hallelujah, the whole are you saying, Ed, that he's doing my sweet Jude? <laughs> <laughs> he is actually having fun there. You know, chant your chosen name of the Lord. Eh? I don't like a lot of that stuff, but here it works. <laughs> he's having fun there because he's like, this is the last song. <laughs> yeah, and you've got Ravi on the, on the stage with him as well. And the other members of the Indian group as well, they're chanting along. And he's thinking, it's over. I'm back to the cocaine. <laughs> I'm done for two hours, then I got to do this damn thing all over again. <laughs> Pour me a pint of brandy. <laughs> but I can listen to that version and, and not be disappointed in it. Pretty much any other song in the show, and I say this, but it's, it's not a bad show. I mean, it's, it's probably better for you, John, having seen it. There's a video which features most of George's set, and it's really interesting to be able to see George and the band playing. Yeah. Well, you know, it, there's that thrill of, you know, after more than a decade of Beatle fandom, I was finally getting to see a Beatle. Had never had that opportunity. So that goes a long way. Seeing a live performance is completely different to listening to a live performance at home on a record. Anyway, everybody knows that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Wings Over America, part of the reason why we remember that tour so fondly is because of Rock Show, which brings us to... One of the other things that a lot of people don't know, George did indeed film the entirety of the Seattle show. Hmm. Yes, but the estate aren't willing to uh, let anybody see that, are they? So the idea, which is actually kind of funny, it's almost a Bruce McMouse kind of thing. 
George had intended to have cameras follow him, film a bunch of backstage stuff, film one show, and then there would be this sort of fictional, almost Spinal Tap-esque parody of the music industry in and around these clips from this show. Right. Okay. The Seattle show got filmed in its entirety. Most of the backstage bits apparently also got filmed. You know, the cameras were following him around and... At the time, George just didn't want to hear any more about it once the tour had ended. But there is a complete edit of what is available, and they put it together and offered it to Scorsese for the Living in the Material World film. We only get a very tiny bit of it in the film, the famous bit about George gargling backstage in one song, but it is out there and it is pro shot i would really like to see what we've got absolutely looking at it as well i mean i've got this on my notes you've got all these musicians and they are all top musicians you know in george's band and in ravi's band as well where you've got lakshmi shankar and you've got ala rakar and all these other musicians in there doing absolutely incredible work and it's it's only his hoarse voice that's probably a problem with it other than that they're all on top four musically Yes. I find it a shame that they never actually, you know, film the other bits and, you know, maybe they do an animation or or maybe they just film it now. It it could probably be an equally funny parody of the music business along with the actual concert footage and, and George backstage today, you know, in 2022. I mean, I'll bring it out now, but I mentioned to Ed in a private chat something about... I mean, I wasn't sure whether I was being serious or not, but I think it works when I said uh, someone like Alvaro Ortega, he could do a nice animation to fill in bits, give it that sort of almost yellow submarine style animation in bits where they haven't got any actual footage. Well, that's what I'm saying. Almost a better Bruce McMouse. <laughs> yes. Yep. Well, we've got a new project for Danny after he finishes the dad grass. <laughs> I'm glad that they actually filmed it, and I'm glad that it's in the vault. It's time for it to come out. We've moved past the point where it's just entertainment. You know, it's history now. Well, the fact that they offered the footage to Martin Scorsese, that's changed my mind, and I'm wondering if we might actually see it as part of the uh, Dark Horse package. Possibly, but, I mean, we're talking about 12 years now since the director recut it. So it was... Specifically for the living in the material world, I I don't know if they were going to include bits of it or if their thought was, oh, well, we can release this after the film comes out. So there is a full edit out there, you know, presumably a full 90-minute, two-hour edit of this film. Paul McCartney as well, he's got material where we've seen upgraded, cleaned-up versions of videos, and they're just there available online, so they've been done. So... And then eventually they come on packages further down the line. So it might be the same thing where they've got this and they've thought, well, hold on, maybe we'll hold on to this until then to include it at this point when it fits with that more. But Olivia seems to be towing the George line. Danny seems to be willing to color outside the lines a little bit with what should and could be put out. Olivia... No, this is exactly what George wanted. And George clearly, up to the end of his life, did not want this footage coming out. We shall see. 
Yeah. It, that, you know, that's always a hard call. I mean, if the artist doesn't want it out, then do we not have respect for what they wish? Or do you say, well, you know, we want the Picasso drawings on the napkin. Shakespeare's first drafts. <laughs> right. There is that issue to this day, you know, new people coming to the Beatles and anybody's work are coming from a space of not really knowing it. And now you've got four or five different versions of a song. You've got remixes and you've got different things done to them. What version of Penny Lane do you hear? Do you hear the one with the little horn line tag at the end or you have the feedback? If you don't know what was intended, you're just going to have a different impression of it all. So that's the show. Let's close out with some of the other things that happened around the tour. The famous George meeting with Gerald Ford and Jack Ford going to the White House. Right. My favorite bit of that is that he brought his dad with him. (laughs) Right. Well, why wouldn't you? (laughs) Brought my dad in self-defense. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that alm button is still in the Ford library somewhere. (laughs) Who knows? And my question is, why was Ray Cooper not on this tour? (laughs) Well, he was probably with Elton at the time. Yeah, probably. You know, I had a a list of people. It's like, you know, this would have, Steve Miller might have been an interesting uh, addition. Or Stevie Wonder. Who knows? Well, but Stevie Wonder and Billy Preston, poor George would have had <laughs> trouble getting a note in edgewise. Right. We've got George Harrison on guitar for us. <laughs> <laughs> and now we'd like to introduce George Harrison. In his show, yep. <laughs> Doris Troy, another missed opportunity. Well, if you were going to do like he did in 92 and actually bring three girls along with them to sing the backing, that might have been really kind of cool. Right. If Doris Troy were one of those. And then you give her a spotlight as well. Yep. Not sure whether he might have been able to have got Ronnie Spector on stage with him, though. (laughs) Well, Phil would never have allowed that. He would not, no. Phil didn't want her in the studio with any of the Beatles, much less uh, out on the road. Well, he didn't let her go with the other Ronettes on the 66 tour with the Beatles. He was jealous of what might happen. The Ronettes without Ron. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the other thing, personally, I mean, we do like to dig a little bit personally. This was really where George was to fall in love with Olivia. You know, she had been a secretary at A&M and then in Dark Horse, but she accompanied them on this tour. Hmm. Yeah, it was a transitional period for him, wasn't it, that way as well? The story is that before the tour, they would just spend hours and hours talking on the phone every night. Again, something which probably didn't help George's voice any. But She came on the tour with them? Not for the entire tour, but she was there for a number of dates, and she did travel with them. Because I was thinking that doesn't really work against him doing lots of blow and drinking lots of brandy and then having her there. I don't think she participated She was more on the record company side, but George probably asked for her to be there. Ah, sneaky George. Olivia tells that story about, oh, you know, as we were going through security, George would reach in and look over. Oh, you're reading that. That's good. Have you thought about reading this? Did she turn up later on in the tour then or just at specific moments? That I don't know. I've heard from several places that she was there 
for at least some of the dates and that she did travel with them for, I would guess it's probably later as they headed back toward New York City. You know, probably the December run. This is complete theory here, but I'm wondering if she was more there for the later period, then perhaps that might have been the start of his cleanup. Yeah. Well, that's strictly a guess. Yes, it is. When is her book coming out? Her poetry book is coming out real soon now. Uh, She just announced that she's got a book of 20 poems. She's putting out a commercial edition and she's putting out a Genesis edition. There's supposed to be lots of nice unseen photographs of her time with George. 20 poems by Olivia? Okay, well, you got to fill the book with other stuff, just like Mape Hang and her rare drawings from John Lennon. (laughs) John, I still want a second book of McCartney lyrics. True enough. Any last thoughts on Mape Hang 1974 or otherwise? Whatever we see and whatever she puts out will be interesting. As far as Dark Horse, do you think they're actually going to prepare some sort of release commemorating this tour? No. You don't think that's part of Danny's five-year plan? Considering George's feelings about it, and I guess Olivia's, I just don't see it happening. It's not considered his best work, and so I don't see it. Despite everything we said, I'm glad that we've got the bootlegs. You know, It's not something that I put on to listen to often, but there are times when it's like, that might be kind of interesting to listen to right now. Yep, there's probably a thing between Danny and Olivia where Danny would probably put out more, but Olivia sort of going, no, perhaps we should not go there. Yes, mother plays a big role. <laughs> perhaps there might come a point when those men are controlling a company that it would be different. Well, yeah. and Sean has already clearly had a bit more free reign post-Imagine Box. Yoko laid out the blueprints for how these linen boxes should be but sean has been given a bit more of a free hand i think since yoko kind of exited the picture as a managing director right not to mention that yoko could stare down any record company executive we're putting out sometime in new york city whether you damn well like it or not (laughs) that's an entirely different subject and a lengthy one to go into It's been a running topic on this show uh, since we found out about the issues going on with Universal Music. We we shall just say some songs are there in history important to that time, but some people, as in record executives, don't necessarily see it that way. Well, they certainly see those sort of things as a problem and an issue to be dealt with. But I think that, that Lennon left behind plenty of explanations as to why he chose to do that. And it makes sense. And so I I don't quite get why. I mean, they're just not willing to take that on when all they want to do is sell a record anyway. We're out of here for this week. Thank you very much for joining us, Martin. P2 Podcast Blues and Pods Like Us are your two shows. You can find them wherever (laughs) finer podcasts are found. Yes, you can. Yep. Thanks for being with us. It's always great. And John and I will be back next week with a new topic. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco. California.
all you have to sacrifice a little bit of something. They have to give a little bit of energy. They have to listen and look in order, and then they'll get it. They'll get something good. But if they're just going to not open their minds and use a concept, you know, to they think it's going to be this, they think it's going to be that, right. then that it in itself is the barrier which stops them enjoying. And if you can get rid of the barriers and just open your mind and your heart, there's such joy in the world to be had. Depending on who you talk to, the George Harrison tour, the first American tour by a former Beatle, is either the welcome return of a talented, generous man, no longer a Beatle, but still devoted to Indian religion and music, or the disappointing return of a talented and generous man who refuses to acknowledge his past and is lost, in fact, in Indian religion and music. Whatever the viewpoint, several things are certain about the tour. Harrison does not sound like the George of past years, the Harrison we know. His voice is hoarse from overexertion. He's been finishing an album, a single, and the rehearsals, all in a two-and-a-half-week period in Los Angeles. In concert, he is not doing many familiar tunes, his own or the Beatles. Eight out of 23, in fact, are familiar. There have been sound problems, understandable to an extent, considering the size of Harrison's band, eight members, and Ravi Shankar's 15-piece orchestra. On several numbers, they are all on stage at the same time and require 80 different channels and microphones. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 